Hi there, you're listening to a great podcast. However, like most great things, it may contain some swearing. If there are any small children or baby animals, specifically puppies nearby, please consider switching this off to preserve their innocence. So before I start season two, I'd just like to acknowledge that all of the episodes that I've recorded so far, and probably most of the episodes that I will record for this season have been recorded on Ghana land, with the exception of one that I've already recorded on Gartigal land. I'd also like to pay my respect to Ghana elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations people who listen to the podcast. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge that Aboriginal sovereignty has not been ceded. From the kitchen table, this is season two of Gate Close Panic. start recording I do all of these strange things with my body like right now I've got my arms out and I'm sort of flailing them around hopefully it'll make me a better speaker I feel a bit rusty um so I met Nikki this week's guest through my friend Chris who also makes a podcast called by the glass and when he recommended her to me as a guest he said he thought she'd be really good because she's this great talker which is really all you want as a podcaster but also because she has this great perspective on the culture of hospitality in relation to women. And he's not wrong. She does have this really interesting perspective, but it's not what I expected it to be. One of the things I really liked about talking to Nikki is that it felt like one of the conversations you would have in real life with your real friends, not a conversation you have when you're thinking about a bunch of people listening to you potentially forever. Nikki, when you listen to this, please don't let that scare you. Anyway, Nikki talks really openly about what it's like to be constantly expected to function as a spokesperson for women in hospitality. I just did air quotes, but you can't see that. Anyway, and how that jars with her lived and observed experiences of things like trauma and suffering and just generally oppression. It's a difficult line to walk because you want to acknowledge that things get shitty for a lot of women in your industry, but that maybe they haven't actually been that shitty for you at work. On the one hand, you don't want to give credence to the suggestion that we've reached enlightenment and there's no reason to complain. But on the other, it feels false to paint yourself as a victim if you haven't felt directly touched by these kinds of difficulties. To kick off this season, my mic died. So this was actually recorded on a phone, which should encourage you to start a podcast because it sounds almost as good as my $400 mic. Also, it was recording, fittingly, in Nikki's beautiful dining room as she finishes off packing for Japan. So prepare for a little bonus background sound. I'll be back at the end of the interview. Enjoy. Um, I'm Nikki Friedley, and I am the... I actually don't know what my title is. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> um, I suppose general manager of Africola. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Okay. Like I said, just starting whenever feels relevant and natural to you. When did you start to be interested in work or in something that might have turned into work? Oh, uh, forever. Um, for as young as I can remember, I've always been interested in 
other things, like specifically hospitality that comes a little bit later. But right. when I was like three, I like marched out of my bedroom one day and told my parents that I was going to be a marine biologist. And I've genuinely been obsessed with the ocean ever since. I dive a lot and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but recognized pretty early on that my aptitude for science was not so great. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So, you know, the sea was angry that day. It's important. <laughs> yeah, realistic expectations. Yeah, pretty much so. You know, <laughs> hitting, even like at primary school, um, being anxious makes you have to be probably prematurely self-aware yeah Um, yeah, I I was like oh I sort of recognized that like language and connecting to people was my strong suit yeah whereas maths and science was definitely falling off the back a little bit for me so yeah yeah. but that was probably my my earliest memory of like announcing that I had job aspirations and then I was interested in everything all the time so you know I also because I realized that like I loved writing and communicating with people mm-hmm. journalism came into it as well as wanting to be a lawyer as well as like wanting to be some kind of like working in international diplomacy like I realized really quickly that you know despite being like you know having been born and raised in Alice Springs in some like tumultuous circumstances at times that there was a lot of opportunity for me to really do whatever I wanted mm-hmm. um, and that was something that my parents always stressed and you know, uh, for me, a lot, there was always the dialogue between my parents and myself was always like when I leave Alice Springs to go to university or when I leave to travel here or when. Wow. So there was always this, it was never something they forced on me. It just seemed like a natural pattern where it was mm. always this discussion of when I inevitably it's a given go. Yeah. Um, and that probably yeah. has a lot to do with the fact that my parents themselves are quite nomadic people who travel around like my dad's originally from Switzerland and you know moved over here and met my mom in Alice Springs when my mom's originally from Adelaide and they were both traveling around and mm. on my mum's side I've got you know sort of like immigrant grandparents who mm. were traveling the world on my way over from Germany and you know so it's I think that the concept of us moving is like a kind of like a given it's yeah. just like something ingrained in our DNA yeah yeah um, okay um, so what was school like for you uh fine really I didn't enjoy it (laughs) I found it really stifling Um, I was good at it Mm -hmm. and I could do the thing but in terms of really connecting with what I was doing I didn't feel any particular passion about it I'm really the only thing I was really passionate about or interested in was literature and Mm -hmm. psychology and English related stuff uh which Mm -hmm. I pursued Pretty much, but you know, like my year twelve years were mostly spent wagging class, watching Antiques Roadshow and playing GTA. <laughs> wow, yeah, <Okay. laughs> just a really weird combination of yeah, things. yeah, it's yeah. all right. You can yeah. be complex. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so as you were kind of coming to the end of school, yeah, what were you thinking would be next for you? Uh, it was definitely university. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, like weirdly enough, in all of this, I started hospitality work like really young so my high school that I went to we were attached to a university called Charles Darwin University and I went to Centralian College Um, and we were basically like a finishing school kind of thing if you like Um, think of it as probably like Mm -hmm. an immensely poor equivalent of the uh, Adelaide University High School. (laughs) Or very much resource restricted, I should probably say. Yeah, okay. Because I had, honestly, I had some really amazing teachers Mm. when I was there, I have Mm -hmm. to admit. But uh, I digress. There was this restaurant called Desert Lantern, which I'm pretty sure is still there, Um, and it was for TAFE. So there was like a TAFE University Mm. 
senior college combination happening on this mm-hmm. one campus. Um, and so there were always apprentice chefs in the kitchen. And so they were like, well, we need front of house. So they were offering a hospitality certificate and we could do it in year 10 as, you know, an extracurricular thing. Mm-hmm. That could be counted towards our, um, was it HSC or a, whatever I can't remember anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, whatever it was. And so I jumped on and did the hospitality one because I was curious. Um, And like entertaining had kind of always been something that like my family have always done. So like Mm -hmm. a really big influence for me has always been uh, my dad's dad's and my grandfather. Um, And like some of my like fondest memories are him kind of visiting or being around and having these like kind of interesting wines or, you know, Mm -hmm. making me like – horse meat tartare in his tiny kitchen in a flat in Switzerland and wow. like, you know hosting these like elaborate Christmas dinners and we'd be there and that mm. kind of like it always really stuck with me and so yeah. I was you know curious yeah and so I did the course and it was where I sort of learned silver service and I got my certificate in you know cert three in hospitality or whatever yeah. it is um and I loved it I really really loved it but mm. at that point I wasn't thinking of it as a job I was thinking of it as me having a qualification to support myself right. while I went to university. Gotcha. Which is, funnily enough, my absolute fucking pet hate now. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, you know. Uh, <laughs> okay, yes. I'm going to cut this open. Yeah, And go then for I'm going to ask you another question. So, <laughs> you know. So we can make food noise now. Yeah, great. So, <laughs> that's kind of a. Hilarious irony. Yes. It has read its head more than once. Oh, honestly, there are so many things from my oh. behavior as a young person I think it's, that I start revolting now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of just like a license to be an asshole for a couple of years. Really. <laughs> but, you know, like it was very much uh, my family were really like, oh, so when are you going to go to university? Because, like, I was a bright kid at risk of you know, tooting my own horn. Like, mm-hmm. I was in extension programs and I was scoring well above my, you know, like – average age especially for anything language literature interpretation related yeah. like yeah. really 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 high scores yeah always um mm-hmm. but I just don't sit well with academia I don't mm-hmm. think it's just I find it frustrating uh but did, did your parents go to university no they didn't actually um I think it's something that my dad possibly particularly maybe regrets a little bit. Right. Um, I think it's always something he's maybe wanted to do because he's, there was a lot of discussion like when I inevitably made the move mm. or what I view now retrospectively as an inevitable departure mm. from university without finishing any of my many degrees that I started because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I think it was initially a little bit difficult for mm. my dad to deal with. Mm-hmm. My dad especially. My mum was a little bit more, well, that's not what you want to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he felt it a bit more, you think? Yeah, absolutely. Like I think it was a it was a thing of concern. Like my dad, you know, very much views the the world as this you know, place where you need certain qualifications to get particular things. Sure. Yeah. And I totally understand that. And mm. I think he views it as very cutthroat and very competitive, which yeah. it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, I just don't really think that university necessarily gives you the leg up that you think it does. Yeah, um, what it claims to give you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was yeah. what I found really difficult being there was, you know, like I left I left Alice Springs with this like idea that university would be like really challenging and satisfying and there would be like people there who would challenge what I thought and there'd be, you know, this open forum to get to know people and express views and I got there and it was like screaming into a void. 
Yeah, I think. I and think, so I was like, oh my God, this is yeah. devastating. And when you grow up as a literary kid, yeah. and you've watched, you know, like movies based at Oxford and a whole uh-huh. bunch of, you know, beautiful yep. 1920s British yeah. novels, you're yeah. imagining university to be a very yeah. different thing to what, Absolutely. It, what it usually is. 100%. Unfortunately. And, you know, Alice Springs does one of two things to you. I think it either makes you really racist or really political. Yeah. Um, and I fell on the side of being political, thankfully. thankfully. Yep. Well, I'm going to be, like, totally candid about it. It was probably a pretty shitty period in my life. Like, this is a teenager from hearing things that other people will say that you internalize that you don't really even think about. Um, so there were probably, I think, like, early on some views that I think were definitely pretty narrow-minded. Not that I was ever, like, oh, you know, Indigenous people like garbage or any, like, it was never um, outright, like, no, but it's that weird, subversive, like, oh, you know, surely you can adjust by now and, like, you know, that didn't mean that I didn't have friends who weren't Indigenous or of, like, mixed ethnicity in their background. You know, if we all went to the same school, we all hung out together. And that was kind of the weirdest part, you know, is that, like, having friends and still being able to hold that view, which is, like, yeah. a whole other thing. But um, having to get over that hurdle myself and realise a lot of the views that I thought were, you know pretty regular that yeah. weren't or yeah. that like actually no that are really regular but aren't correct yes is the yeah. better way to put it yes yeah quite right. um you know I think that was probably what I learned from that was immensely more beneficial than anything I learned at university in yeah. like the four years I was there doing different things yeah so you know um did you go straight out of school did you uh, leave I took, yeah so I took then? a gap year okay um just to I don't know do whatever I went and did I didn't do schoolies. I only did like lots of different music festivals. I went from Alice Springs to Adelaide, Adelaide to Perth, and then Perth to Broome. Working them? Um, no, I was just going. No, I was just going. No, just going and doing my own thing. Ah, uh, to be young. Yeah. <laughs> you know, with all those zero responsibilities mm-hmm. I had, and it was a totally weird, a totally weird trip. I was, um, I had this like kind of pseudo long distance relationship with this guy who lived in Perth, mm-hmm. and we drove up to Broome together, and both almost died on the car trip. <laughs> What? Yeah, well, um, there was a, we stopped to sleep and, um, you know, you learn pretty quickly when you grow up in the middle of nowhere that you only would ever sleep at a truck stop where there's actually other truckies around and hope that none of them are murderers. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was like a truck bay and we pulled over into that and we're like, we have to sleep. Like my eyes were shutting and I was like, Ugh. all right, all right. So we pulled over and there'd been someone behind us for a little while. Oh God. It was fine. And so... This is how scary Australia is. It totally is. Stuff. I felt like I was in Wolf Creek. <laughs> <laughs> and in, per, in like Western Australia, mm-hmm. what you're thinking about the entire time is Ivan the Lamp. <laughs> and, so, and so we pulled over into this little truck bay and he'd started to drift off and I had seen the car drive past. I didn't think anything about it. It was a big, big white ute with like massive floodlights. Yeah. But like a country car you know sure yeah for hunting yeah people. yeah absolutely yeah. and you wearing their skins as coats i imagine <laughs> so i drove great, past yeah. like lights on yeah totally regular yeah but because it's so quiet and so flat i could hear it slowing down as it went past and so i got out of the car and i kind of mm. popped my head up and I was, you know low scrub and i stood on the side of the car to look out and i watched the car turn its lights off so i was like oh that's a bit weird <laughs> and so i was like nudging my boyfriend was asleep. I was like, Tom, Tom, like, wake up. I was like, you need to put the keys in the ignition. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, just put the keys in the ignition. Just trust me. He's like, okay. And so they turned the lights off and I watched him do a U-turn and they came back up to the truck bay and I was kind of crouching behind, like looking through the window. 
Um, and I shut the door to the car and got back in. No, 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 I was still standing outside at this point. And they came up behind us and I was like, well, maybe they just need help, thought we were sleeping. And I pulling up to sleep behind us but didn't want to wake us up by having the lights on. I was like think, trying to like calm myself into a thousand <laughs> yeah, like more sure. reasonable explanations. And sure. they get behind us. The last thing I really can see is like whoever was in the driver's seat, like went really fast sideways, I'm assuming to reach for the glove box. And then they turned all the lights on, like not just the headlights, like the floodlights, the whole thing completely blinded me and the door opened. And so I was like, drive, get car and drive. Oh my God. And I think we drove at like 200 Ks an hour for like, an hour so that was my like <laughs> coming of age Gap in the year. outback yeah oh yay had a great time <laughs> so oh my god that's the kind of story you tell children to yeah totally like yeah. go straight to university <laughs> might die on the side of a road somewhere the boy you don't really like perfect <laughs> yeah uh, okay all right <laughs> but after i almost died i went to university and didn't change my life in any way <laughs> Neither yeah. experience did. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> it's totally weird. Such a weird thing to do. Um, um, what did you start at uni? I was doing a Bachelor – no, I was doing international studies yep. with a Bachelor of Arts, mm-hmm. which is really just a fancy way of – oh, sorry. Hey, Mo. Yeah. Are you scooting up? I need to give you some plates to take with you. Bye. Bye. Oh, I'll see you today. Uh, no, I'll be in because I've got to drop off Nicole's present. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. No, it's all right. So, yeah, international studies with a BA, a double degree, which, you know, is just fucking bullshit. Let's be real. It's a Bachelor of Arts with a folk, with a majoring in politics. Yes, yeah. what it is. Yeah. And that was the first thing that really started to grate on me is that I didn't really understand why I had to keep qualifying what I was doing. Um, mm-hmm. That started to really irk me. It was like, you know, I'd come all this way had come from Alice Springs, had moved interstate, had done the whole thing and together. Mm. People are like, oh, so what are you going to do? You're going to like fry chips for the rest of your life. And I'm like, that's not the point of university. It's like, I didn't come here with the express purpose of, you know, getting a job. While like sometime in my future, like I was hoping that having a degree would help me with employment. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, unless you're doing engineering, I feel like it's probably a little bit of a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, well, you know, I felt really, I was, you know, I, I was trying to feel proud about it. I was like, yeah. oh, I'm doing, you know, and I did start to use I started to feel ashamed and people were like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, international studies. And I stopped calling it a Bachelor of Arts, you know, and yeah. like, I feel like that's one of the massive problems is that there's this entire devaluing of liberal arts um visual arts don't get me wrong i think there's still a really long way to go Mm. um i'm sure i actually don't know much about funding to that kind of stuff but i know that for liberal arts it is oh man it's dire it's death throes yeah which is a huge problem like you i actually don't really understand why you shouldn't have to do a bachelor of arts and then you major whatever it is specifically that you're interested in yeah. and you should just there should be some courses that are just like generalized you should have to take going into university like which I, is ironically kind of a more traditional yeah like the american university. system yeah yeah, yeah yeah and i mean also in britain and a lot mm-hmm. of well when there were no women allowed um that was a lot of, right. that was a lot of what happened you just sort of went to learn generally yeah. about the world yeah history politics all of those mm-hmm. sorts of things that 
you know, a lot of it can be really fundamental knowledge. Yeah, it is. Like just, you know, getting a better grip on how the world works. Like that, I, that I don't regret. Like I think I got there at a good time and I took some really, I'm going to sound really wanky, took some really, really, really great philosophy courses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of them is like, um, was all entirely based around the concept of how to build a comprehensive argument yep. and what that looked like and what logical fallacies are and how mm-hmm. that functions and all the different types, you know, straw man argument and red herring and, you know, all these things. That, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's really, really, really good. And yeah. I feel like it's something that everybody, whether you are a scientist or you're an engineer or whatever, the, or you're a teacher, mm-hmm. understanding how to form a comprehensive argument that is based on facts that are actually researched and being able to identify when someone is basically pulling the wool over your eyes. Yeah is really, really important. Yes. And I think if everyone had a better understanding of that, maybe shitty internet outrage culture <laughs> would be, it. like, less yeah. prevalent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's much more fun being outraged than it is having to actually consider all the factors. You mm-hmm. know, it's way easier. It is. I think we all do it. I do it all the time. I'm really quick to have – unfortunately, I'm really quick to anger. <laughs> I never mm-hmm. show it. I think it's just like a slowly compounded rage, like a calcified rage built up over time of having to be polite to people who I really want to throat punch because they've been so rude. One day it'll be you in the truck with the floodlight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day it'll be me. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing nothing but like wallaby skins. Mm. Mm. All right. Well, it's good to know you've got somewhere to aim for. Yeah. Okay, so you were at uni for four years. What were you doing to support yourself while you were there? Hospitality work. Uh-huh. So the entire time I was working Cospo. Um, yeah. I never stopped. I, I, I briefly worked at um, uh, Muses when it was still there, a little record store on Rundle Street. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I worked for their – my first job in high school was working at a record store in mm. Alice Springs. Um, I was working at their sister shop. Yeah. So I moved to Adelaide. Nice. Found a job. And I was working there for the first little bit, uh, but I think – they were either moving, I think they were moving into closing down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hated early mornings. Yep. I've always hated early mornings. Sorry. I've never, no, it's fine. 9 a.m. is not early for me anymore, okay. but I mean like having to get up at 7.30 to be at work. Like getting up at 9 yeah. or close to 9 is no drama. Sorry, no drama, but mm-hmm. like this whole like up at 7.30 to be in an office or in an enclosed rooms. Yeah. At 9 a.m. to leave mm-hmm. at 5 p.m. And it's dark when you wake up and dark when you go to bed like I you lose the whole day yeah and I, I, I really found that hard mm-hmm. so I was like I'm just gonna go back to hospitality work which yeah. also paid better that it does that was yeah. a big thing for me I was like I would way rather be doing that mm-hmm. and so I kept dropping out of uni and kept working full-time yeah it just kept happening didn't matter what I did well actually no I didn't do anything about it. Instead, I just kept sort of letting uni fall by the wayside because I wasn't enjoying it. Mm -hmm. I wasn't getting what I wanted out of it, Mm -hmm. but kept persevering because I felt obligated to go. Yeah. Part of that was like, I really wanted to live up to the expectations I had formed as a kid of what I should be. Mm -hmm. Um, I also didn't want to have to have a conversation with my dad. Yeah. (laughs) Which is a really big, it was a lot of fear for me. Not because I thought that he would be awful and be like, you're disowned, like nothing like that, but that he would just feel disappointment. Um, and also maybe a little bit of fear because what I was doing, I don't really think it's normal anymore. The way I did things is to just like go into a job and decide you like that job and keep doing it. You know, like the other problem is that what I do is it considered a trade. Yeah. Just a whole other 
thing I get angry about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. When, at what point did you start to kind of shift in the direction of considering what you had up until that point just been doing to pay the rent, um, I assume? I was 23. Actually. Yeah. It was a really distinct, like I really made a conscious decision at that time. So okay. I had been working at a place called Jack Ruby, which doesn't exist anymore. And I'd wound up there through a long and strange series of events. Uh, but I've known those guys for a very long time. But anyway, I decided that I was going to leave there to pursue something more serious. Mm-hmm. And so I applied for a job at Golden Boy, mm-hmm. which is, you know, around the corner from Africola. And I started working there. And that was a point where I was like, that's it. I really want to make, this is it. This is my career now. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not going back to university. This is what I want to do. How did it feel? Really liberating. Yeah. Scary in a yeah. way. Because I was like, well, this is my job now. Yeah. And you've um, got to feel comfortable with it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like I still that little voice in the back of my head that like the big thing for me is and something that has moved much more into my sphere of late. Um, initially it was like, well, what is it going to do to make such a <laughs> such a wanker saying it out loud. But like, what am I doing to make the world a little bit of a better place? Yeah. Because that was something that I grew up in some pretty, seeing some pretty horrific conditions that people, yeah. you know, live in. Yeah, I watched my, I watched a domestic violence thing play out in the middle of my street where a woman stabbed her husband in the chest. And this was just like after school one day. Jesus. Now people all up and down my street who lived opposite, you know, across the road from me who lived in basically like shanty conditions mm. through, you know, years of complicated social oppression. And then you go out to the communities and it's, like people are like oh that only happens in Africa and you're like yeah except it also happens in Alice Springs yeah possibly worse with one of the world's worst infant mortality rates and yeah really high rates of diabetes and no one's living past 40 and you know I was like this whole thing and so that always is somewhere yeah. in my head yeah. whether or not I'm actively thinking about it or whether it's just kind of bubbling away mm-hmm. somewhere in the background yeah, yeah. there is always that feeling of urgency for me of like, am I doing something mm-hmm. that is beneficial? Mm-hmm. And I'm basically working in an industry that in a lot of ways right now, you know, is very much just about having a lot of whatever it is that you want yeah. um, as a consumer, which is a hard thing to reconcile for me, especially increasingly lately. Like I've made a, like I, I have no urge to have children. At all. Like, it's never been a thing for me, no matter how much people are like, you'll find the right person and your ovaries will just blah, blah, blah. Like, I just, yeah, yeah. honestly, like, people are like, do you want to hold my baby? I'm like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your arm's broken. <laughs> Don't give it to me. But, like, I spend a lot of my time, like, my childhood looking after my sisters, who are both much younger than me. So right. I'm 27. Romy's 18. My youngest sister, Eden, is 10 or mm-hmm. 11 now. So, you know, like, I did a lot of, a lot of looking after yeah. babies. It was mm-hmm. like a, a bit of like a latchkey kid. would come yeah. home from school. Parents are still at work. I'd look after my sister until somebody got home. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of other sort of like extenuating circumstances outside of that that meant that I was looking after my sister a lot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I know how to nurse a baby, take care of one completely. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like I've already... <laughs> it sounds like a stupid thing to say because I was eight and what could I have possibly known? But like, mm. I honestly feel like any maybe maternal curiosity I would have had was just very much quelled by that the first nice. 17 years of my life, very solidly being about 
helping to take care of children. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, I have no drive yeah. for it. But in terms of, you know, I think when people talk about the future, there's always a lot of talk about, oh, you know, what are my kids going to inherit? And, you know, like, you know, like in terms of the planet. No, like, yeah, you know, absolutely. And 100% increasing... like, we should think about future generations. And I am thinking about future generations, but I like that. I, I care just like with it broadly because humanity, not specifically because I have children. Yeah. Not there's anything wrong with caring specifically because you have children at all. It's a very yeah. normal thing yeah. to do. Yeah, but you can care without having Yeah, absolutely. Children. You know, yeah. like working in an industry that is filled with lots of plastic and, you know, needs a whole lot of change and work and right, yeah. That has now very much come back into my line of vision. So like mm-hmm. when I really first got into it and committed, I was like, you know, I don't know, I was twenty three, there was a lot of partying, there was mm. a lot of like all the other stuff that comes with hospitality. So, mm. you know, I was drinking really heavily out all the time mm-hmm. there a lot I'd also just come off the back of having like really severe glandular fever for like two years yeah yeah <laughs> it was bad um I was the first time around where I really wanted so there was a point when I was about I think about 21 where mm-hmm. I tried to jump into hospitality really seriously mm-hmm. um and I was one of the original crew who opened up proof wine bar mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I was sort of pegged for that to take on a slightly more managerial role, um, but I wound up being so sick that my performance just completely destroyed itself. Like, I was at uni full-time. I was working pretty much full-time. Mm-hmm. I went through an awful breakup with, like, you know, you know, first big love, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So my body, I think, just started to shut down. Yeah. And that was probably one of my big hindrances in terms of getting back into hospitality, like properly and why I stayed at university a little bit longer was because I was like, man, my body just can't do it, you know? So I was like, maybe it's just not for me. Actually gave myself the time and space to get slightly better-ish. I'm really terrible with ever taking time to really slow down. Yeah. So, you know, the next time around where I really decided I was going to give it my all was, yeah, golden boy. And then one afternoon I was working a Sunday because I was working this like ramen thing for Bobby Noodle and uh, Duncan happened to be working as well who's the executive chef and one of my business partners at Afrocola and I was really hungover <laughs> and he was really hungover so and I'd ridden stories. to work and I had like blown the inside of my like lacing out my jeans and I was really cranky <laughs> I walked in and you know Duncan looked at me and he was like I've never worked with you before and I was like well I'm just here to fill in because such and such couldn't be here. And he's like, oh, I'm in the same position, blah, 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 small talk. And he was like, why don't you tell me a funny joke? I was like, what? And he's like, tell me a joke. And so I was like, all right. And I'd heard this like hideous joke a few days before. So I like repeated it. And it is. <laughs> uh, what's the difference between a five pound bag of cocaine and a five year old? What is it? Eric Clapton wouldn't let a five pound bag of cocaine fall out a window. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Horrific, like awful, please don't put that in there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like, and you know, he thought that was hilarious and I basically, that was how I got a job at Africola. It was essentially my job interview. I slowly made the merge to Africola. Yeah, right. At some point in and around all of that, I had been thinking about moving to Tasmania Mm -hmm. because university was kind of twinkling away in the background again because I was getting restless at Golden Boy. Yeah. 
So, you know, I was like, oh, and there was this like really amazing like Arctic program happening for marine biology at UTAS. And I was like, even though I suck at science, maybe I should just give it a go. Mm. I've managed to survive this long on the planet without dying. So I'm sure I can figure out how to, you know, do science. So I went down there to go and check it out. Mm. Um, I had a job lined up, but the job didn't work out. Mm. And literally as I walked out of the job interview, I got a phone call from Duncan and he was like, I've got a spot for you here permanently full-time do you want it and I was like yes <laughs> got on a plane flew home yeah. and that was it I've been stuck a good stuck stuck at Africola ever since wow. which was kind of the slow foray into hospitality I yeah. suppose yeah um in terms of advantages that I've had and disadvantages mm. I suppose the one big advantage I had is that like Duncan has always backed me 100%. Right. Um, I got handed a restaurant as a 23-year-old who didn't, who had never done anything like that before. Like, obviously, I'd worked hospitality, mm. and like, but, like, in terms of running a restaurant, so the, the then restaurant manager resigned really shortly into my taking over as assistant manager. So yeah. within six months, I had the restaurant. Wow. Uh, so I basically just learned to do everything as I went, there was wow. no real handover. I was flying blind. I had no idea what I was doing. And so I had to build Africola and build myself yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Um, and my mental health has always been an issue for me. I think like a lot of people, I think, I don't know what it is about hospitality work that necessarily makes uh, people with mental health issues gravitate towards it. Like, I, I mean, nothing serious. I've, well, actually has been serious in the past but like I have really severe anxiety and I've mm. had depression for a very long time mm. for really for as long as I can remember um and that you know some of my first services running Africola were spent with me smiling at people and running around the restaurant and you know looking all very together and then I go into the back alleyway and puke into the storm drain just like five or six times a night just constantly out the back door because I was so anxious mm. and so terrified of like fucking this opportunity up that had really like it felt like to me I hadn't really earned it it had just kind of fallen into my lap yeah you know like I felt like there should have been some kind of I should have had to go through more hoops to get the reward whereas like the thing I wanted just really suddenly was like bam it was right there and I was like oh okay I guess this is mine now and yeah Yeah. feeling this immense responsibility for you know the people who's before I came on as a partner, mm. whose business it was to really have to perform at a very high level yeah. while not really actually knowing what that meant. Mm. So overnight, I was pretty much writing a wine list, managing stuff, doing the whole the whole thing. Yeah. So in terms of, I would probably count that. At the time, I would have said it was a massive disadvantage. Now I would say it's a huge advantage. There is nothing that anyone could possibly throw at me in any situation that I'd be like, I can't make it work. Yeah. I've made things work that shouldn't have been able a thousand times, you know? And so like, I think I really enjoy, I think I enjoy stress. I think I enjoy struggle and having something really active to engage with and mm-hmm. daily problems to solve. Yes. Um, that's something I find really satisfying. Yeah. Another big problem with me for university was going in and out and being like, none of this feels relevant 
none of this is problem solving. All of this is just me sitting in a room with six kids who are talking about how their parents paid for them to be here. And that makes me want to punch my eyes out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So what do you like about hospo? Cause I, I mean, it's sort of been a given throughout that it was something that you were attracted to or something that you were good at, but what do you like about it? Um, as much as I sometimes really, really want to withdraw from people, I really like making people happy. Mm-hmm. I like knowing that someone can have had a really, really, really shit week and come and just put that aside for two hours. Because I really, I think there is, there is a lot of value in hospitality when you remove all the wank and the bullshit that can come along with it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's important people to have a space where they feel like they can go and be looked after and turn their brain off mm-hmm. for two hours mm-hmm. in a world where you're constantly expected to meet specific expectations or goals or you have to live up to X, Y, or Z. Like just being able to go somewhere and go, I don't have to be whatever for the next little part yep. of my life. Yep. Um, and I enjoy helping people with that. And I think it's therapeutic. Um, and that's something I really love. You know, like I've had some really special uh, interactions. Africola is a front of house worker. Like we had a guy who'd had a really severe motorbike accident um, and had just regained the use of his limbs. Um, and the place he wanted to come to dinner was Africola because it was delicious and it was his first time outside of a hospital in like a year. Mm. Um, and he just learned how to reuse his hands, you mm. know. And so having someone like that come in and you know, teaching him how to savor open a bottle of champagne, mm. helping him to use his hands and like having a long discussion and him being like, you know, realizing I had something to look forward to. He's like, I know it sounds trivial. Mm. And I was like, fuck, that's probably one of the most incredible things anyone's ever said to me. Being like knowing that someone can look forward to something, you know, looking at the dark end of a year of intense rehabilitative therapy and having them be like, I just was really thinking about having one really good meal. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I think it says a lot. It um, does. We had a group of women come in. One of them had cancer. They didn't tell us. They were just like, we've got a special night organized. And yeah. so, you know, we just did our thing. And thankfully I have an incredible team of people who are really empathetic. And, um, you know, so when I tell, whenever the briefing notes are like, oh, there's someone who's coming for a special night, we just make it special regardless of what the occasion is. It doesn't matter. Um, they emailed us like a couple, you know, two months later and we're like, we just wanted you to know that it was a really memorable night for us. It was our farewell dinner to her. She's since died. Your restaurant has a really special place in our hearts now. Like, you know, how do you, how do you quantify that? Yeah. I can't, you know? And that's, that's what I really love about it is that there is that little opportunity in there in something that can be very superficial, Mm -hmm. um, to really connect to people. Yeah. make a difference and you also have a huge platform I realized that you know like I get to tell whatever narrative I want and it's one of the few spaces where I think people will accept it you know to an extent because <laughs> there are lots of things they often don't but like you know if I have a you know completely Adelaide wine list people ask me why I'm in a position of, you know, a little bit of power with them where I get to be like, oh, because I don't believe in food miles and I think about this and I think about that and I've chosen it because 
I know the farmer and I know what he does with the land and that stuff is important to us. And then they go, maybe they'll go, oh, the next time I'm at a bottle shop, maybe I'll ask, you know, what they're doing with the soil. Is it regenerative? You know, should I be thinking about organic wine? Is organic a buzz term? Like, and being able to have these discussions with people around food, which is pretty much the key to us ever existing, is super, super, super important. So there is like, there is a massive pocket in there for me to still satisfy my like pseudo activists yeah <laughs> roots like for lack of a better term yeah um which is something that I've only really been able to get to a place now that things have calmed down for me a little bit yeah and come back to like I'm slowly slowly very slowly as you can see by the amount of weeds in the yard um <laughs> that though is actually a rock melon plant and pumpkins and tomatoes and cucumbers happening in that Nice. Slightly burnt up looking patch back there. Yeah. But, you know, slowly trying to get Africola's garden up and running mm. and all these other little like side projects that, you know, have been an avenue that have opened up that I wouldn't have expected or thought about, mm. which is another thing I really love is that, you know, I've been some crazy places for this job that I normally wouldn't have gone and I don't think any other job would have afforded me the opportunity to do, yeah. really. Yeah. So, yeah. What do you looking towards in the next few years what are you kind of hoping to change if anything I really my big my next big goal is really focusing on the trying to think of a better word than sustainability but there isn't one Mm. it's just such a loaded term now Mm. is um, is like sustainability for the restaurant like Mm -hmm. what I'm really interested in is making sure that it is and like sustainable on lots of fronts um a sustainable working environment massive thing for this industry is burnout um, especially for chefs, I think. Front of house is a little bit different because there's still a lot of casual workers. Mm-hmm. At least, yeah, it's kind of complicated, especially for chefs. Um, and, you know, making sure that sustainability is met in terms of the hours they work, how they work them, um, trying to reduce the impact on their bodies. Um, you know, that's probably one of the first avenues is mm-hmm. staff care, which... Africola has been better at in a lot of places I've worked, um, mm-hmm. especially with our team now. Like this is one that it's taken us all this time, like four years, to really get it right. Mm-hmm. And it's happened now. And we have a good team of people who are genuinely invested in each other as humans and look mm-hmm. out for each other. And because I can tell you that, like, unless you're running a really big series of restaurants, you are only as good as your team. And they have to be healthy and they have to be happy and they have to, you have to be, a, it's such a cliche, but yeah, you really have to be a family. You have to know all the shit things about each other mm. and all the good things about each other and be very comfortable with both of those worlds mm. and understand that people are going to have bad days, yeah. you know, or maybe bad weeks. Yeah. But you know each other and you get each other through that. Like not mm. at risk of being like nepotistic or saying yes to behavior that is totally unacceptable, which is I think the reverse, like the negative effect of that is... Yeah. Sometimes, especially in, you can get a bit like, you know, boys clubby and yeah. that can kind of become quite incestuous and dangerous, but you know, everything in moderation, obviously, but you know, that sort of stuff is important. And then, you know, for me, it's also a really big case of, you know, really minimizing plastic use. We've, thanks to one of our um, sous chefs, Ethan actually have finally gotten a whole series of like compost bins out the back. So like any food wastage goes in there and is turned into biofuel yeah. or into compost. Yeah. And trying to completely, my dream would be, you know, 100% no plastic. Yeah. I don't know because of 
occupational health and safety cleanliness standards, how realistic that is. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, I think 90% at least is doable, surely. So, you know, no plastic, the garden really being up and running with the hope of taking over a bigger plot. Mm -hmm. Those are really my, where I'm looking at for the next little while. Um, I think as much as I have loved working the floor, it's probably slowly time for me to maybe mitigate that time Mm -hmm. a little bit Mm -hmm. uh, just because, A, the outside stuff, like, you know, all the sustainability stuff I'm really interested in, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of organisation, especially if you're doing it by yourself. Yeah. And, like, not to say that my team aren't supportive, it's that they work a lot of hours in a week mm-hmm. and the last thing I want to do is call them on a Sunday and go hey do you want to come and help me weed a garden oh no this is one day you get to spend with your like pregnant wife or with your child like absolutely not like yeah. or just to blow off steam and lay down in bed yeah you know I'm not I don't want to ask that the yeah. offer will be there but you know the reality is, is like I can't expect people to take the time as much as I would love it and I think it's beneficial as it would be you know, and, and doing something like a garden and all like a focus on sustainability that involves everyone to me is like a really big bonus in terms of education. Like I'd love for people to walk away from Africola and be like, I can walk into any kitchen and identify four ways we could mitigate these waste problems. And then like, it just keeps going, you know, and then they do it. And then that kitchen does it. And then that kitchen's apprentices take that with them wherever they go. And I think it's the only way you're really going to solve problems is making it like culturally normal to want those things. I just sort of from what you're saying, um, what what is your week like or your day or you know, what what sort of a lifestyle does this job give you? Um, so I usually roll into work around kinda of depends. Let's say my first day back on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I'll kind of get up and potter around home. I'll get up at about nine or ten AM. Mm-hmm. I'll do like I'll process, you know, hours and wages and whatever often from bed. Right, okay. Roll into work around 11, mm-hmm. tidy up paperwork, look at stock, you know, clean, reorganize. Like the restaurant's usually set, ready to go, but you know, you've got to drag all the furniture out, settle the outside. That's usually done by a casual member or myself. It depends where the time falls. Yeah. I honestly just do a lot of responding to emails, phone mm-hmm. calls, um, very much being the first point of contact. Yeah the restaurant that's probably what occupies most of my time Mm -hmm. and then slotted within that is like just sort of constantly being on the lookout for new wines new cocktails new beers new this filtering through emails organizing external events like Mm -hmm. I can't really say that I have a set day today sorry (laughs) so that's kind of the nice thing is that like my general day-to-day actually has a lot of variety in terms Mm -hmm. of what I'm dealing with but honestly it's kind of like wake up get there at 11 filter through all the emails make sure stocks arrived meet up with a few wine reps or beer reps or whoever happens to be coming through Mm -hmm. going my way um troubleshoot and problem solve little things that come up whether it's one of the air cons isn't working i have to organize last minute or repair for this or you know fixing table legs or whatever has happened yeah and then i'll if service isn't super, super hectic, um, often I'll sort of at this point now be the first person to bow out, which is you know, sort of around 10.30. Mm-hmm. If it can be earlier, sometimes and it will, but as a general rule, it's sort of 11 a.m. till midnight. Yeah. But thankfully I've had a really good 
group of people lately where I've had a little bit more freedom and it's been slightly earlier finishes. But um, as a general rule, about 12 hours a day. Because yeah. often if I finish at 10 at night, I'll come home and I'll still jump on my computer, have a little look, check out like whatever I've you know thought about during that day that has to be taken care of yeah. or send gift vouchers in the mail or whatever it is. You know, all those little jobs that just always kind of crop up and... Yeah. But it's kind of, it's weird, sorry. Yeah. It's um, it's, re- it's actually quite difficult to kind of quantify my day. Like I don't really have a set routine other than getting their emails, phone calls, and then whatever comes whatever up. Whatever needs to be done. Whatever needs to be done in that yeah. time. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of it now for me is especially sort of like crunching numbers for someone mm-hmm. who's terrible at maths. <laughs> so, you know, looking at, you know, my percentage of wage cost, you know, making sure that that's at the level that it should be, looking at the percentage on alcohol spend versus what we're making on food and then making sure that that meets you know a particular margin because restaurants really run on a margin of like 10 percent profit generously yeah it's you really have to love it and that's the thing is that like owning a restaurant is like you cannot you know people are like for love or money and it's like no no (laughs) you really have to want it Mm. Um, and that feeling of like you have to be so in love with it as a as a concept, yeah. the restaurant, the food, the whole industry, mm-hmm. everyone has to feel that way about it. All your employees have to be that way because otherwise it doesn't work. I yeah. think that's why we're all a bit like a little bit weird and slightly not right and obsessive is like because you just have to, whether you're a casual employee, like you still kind of have to feel like it's your own. Yes. And I think that's why, you know, maybe things like you know, suicide rates amongst hospitality workers are so high is that the pressure that you feel constantly is immense because yeah. you have a firm understanding that a people are very unforgiving mm. and I don't mean employees in restaurants I mean customers yeah and so you need to do whatever it takes in a way I don't really I've had zero tolerance for the concept of the customer always being right I agree at all mm. and I think there are times where as a per the same way that I'm not always right as the yeah. server you know like it works both ways mm. you're a human you make mistakes as well like there's a lot of behavior from customers that I won't tolerate at Africola and I have no issue with, you know, telling someone to leave and that I don't want their money. Yeah. You know, it's a, I think that's a really important part of prioritizing your staff's care. Like if someone touches one of our staff or says something untoward or like you can get out, like I need your money on the busy restaurant. And even if I wasn't a busy restaurant, I don't really want your money. Like it's not worth, it's not worth doing that to somebody. Mm-hmm. Sorry, totally okay. rambling. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I I was going to ask before we finish, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you feel like it's really uh, pertinent? For me, probably the kind of like weird and uncomfortable issue of um, and it's such a, you know, at the same time as I kind of tend to like stiffen up and eye roll a bit whenever someone asks me questions about this is like, being a woman in the hospitality industry so it's something that's come into the spotlight quite a lot lately and I find it I actually and I understand that my experience is not normal I have within the confines of Africola never ever ever has my ability been questioned because I'm a woman mm-hmm. ever if anything I probably wish <laughs> been points of people like are you ready to do that not because you're a woman just because you're a child yeah so it's not something that I have to battle on a daily basis. Like I very firmly have a lot of control mm-hmm. and I have control that not people really 
not many people really question at all, mm. unless it's, you know, is this going to be an expensive decision? Yes, well, then we need to have a partner's meeting. Yeah. And even then, it's sort of, you know, I don't think anyone there thinks that I'm less capable because I'm female. Yeah. But in terms of having to function in interactions with customers, like, that has been garbage. And I actually think a lot of the sexism that people experience within the industry doesn't come from within the industry. It comes from customers. Yeah. Um, I am absolutely sure that there are shit people, and I know that there are shit people in the industry who do and say shit things about women and to women. Mm-hmm. But I also really don't think, outside of some very small circles, I don't think they're tolerated mm-hmm. because of the kind of environment we're in where there are, there is an increasing number of female chefs mm-hmm. and female chefs with visibility. So there's always been a lot of female chefs. There's always been a lot of female front of house workers. The only difference now is that people are finally paying attention a little bit. And that has been excellent. Mm. The fallout has kind of been now is that because I think the kind of person hospitality attracts, we tend to be really fiercely independent Speaking generally for women here, yeah. we're probably yeah. very wrong. Um, really fiercely independent. A lot of us seem to be from backgrounds where there have been negative experiences with men, whether it's violence or abuse or whatever. Like there seems to be a lot of. I, I don't really know why, but there seems to be a little, a good portion of that in there. Yeah, it has made us very steadfast sorts of people, mm-hmm. and so it's hard, you know, so that eternal struggle of. I never want to be given a job just because I'm a woman mm-hmm. and I never want to be given an opportunity just because I'm a woman. The same way I wouldn't want an opportunity taken away from me just because, you know, and it's like, it's really hard to shake that. And I can see this like really strange uh, discomfort happening. Cause it's like the sentiment that I'm saying is like from conversations that I have had with people who work in relatively like high positions, like people I've looked up to as mentors have kind of, had the same sensation where it's like they have no issue with absolutely being like, you know, I would stand behind my female stuff 100% and I think it's great that women have visibility and like, it's at the same time they're like, I don't want to be given this just because. You know, the same way, the you know, one way I put it is like, you know, sometimes the industry can be really like nepotistic and gross. Mm-hmm. You know, someone will get an award for something because they know the right person. And I realised that that is... I can acknowledge that it is different in the sense that that is happening because you have a leg up mm-hmm. rather than happening because you don't have the leg up that you need. But it's been a really interesting thing to, to watch play out because I can get this really strong sense of women in the industry not wanting to take an opportunity because they feel like it might just be being handed to them and then in the long run be damaging, they feel. Like, it's like, oh, well, she just got the job because you know they had to because tokenism basically yeah. there's that real i think there is very much a undercurrent of tokenism you know that all the massive discussions that have happened lately around like oh there's chef of the year and there's female chef of the year i was like either change the titles male chef and female chef for me personally i just want there to be a chef of the year yeah surely it should happen there shouldn't be there doesn't need to be a separation between them at all it's really not a yeah absolutely so you know i think because a lot of us are so like battle (laughs) axy 
<laughs> there's not like a lot of room for like softness around feminism or discussions i think it's very much a case of it's like we just want to be left the fuck alone to do our jobs yeah and do them really really well yeah and get in on merit yeah and it's so strange and it's a really strange time to be female in the industry i've really felt it over the last little while and i know that you know when i was i've been called up for a couple of big awards which was really lovely and really surprising so surprised that my acceptance speech at the Good Food Guide was, oh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> and I cried. Uh, so I'm not really sure. Sorry, I've got a little bit squiggly. I'm not really sure what the point I'm trying to get at is because I, it's something I always wonder if I should talk about it more or not. Like I always have that debate. Not because like I feel like it's going to be annoying or people are going to tell me to be quiet, mm. but because – I don't know if it would be – it's such a weird thing because the people I'm trying to call out are not necessarily my peers. So it's like a hard thing to engage with. I don't, I don't know. The people you want to talk to aren't listening. Yeah, I suppose. But it's like kind of like, you know, as a custom, like customers will touch me or will try to. I definitely do not let anyone touch me ever anymore. There was a point where I would have tolerated someone putting their hand on the small of my back or, you know, like which people would – like especially – you know, men of a certain age, is always the, oh, darling, you know, the hand on the small of the lower back or on the waist. And, like, I am very much a person. I don't really like to be touched unless I have explicitly made it known. I'm not comfortable with stranger contact yeah. at all. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I love hugging my friends and when I feel like I can be very physically affectionate, but as a general rule with people, you know, I'm like, well, no, don't touch me. <laughs> yeah, that does me. Yeah, and so it's kind of like how do you have this like longing depth discussion about a very complex issue with someone who's in your care for two hours? Yeah, so I've sort of outside of you know rejigging things like awards, at least in Australia at the moment, I would hope. Again, Africa is kind of different, you know, like Mo, who was here before, like, you know, she's the head chef of Africola, she's a woman. My yeah. entire floor staff are female. Mm. The ratio of female to male employment in Africola is absolutely skewed in the way of female. Mm. I don't know why. It's actually not something I've ever set out to do deliberately. There's just something about the restaurant that mm, happens to be female. I don't yeah. know why. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Even our clientele, weirdly, our clientele who like really follow us closely on social media something like 75 percent women between 28 and 38 mm. so like professional it seems to be like professional women like who are holding some kind of you know professional it's such an arbitrary term young women who like are either you know single or relatively unattached to are like you know either quite entrepreneurial or you know really strongly directional in terms of like a lot of them are like career mm -hmm. sure women if you like yeah which is really interesting yeah so you kind of have to wonder if the vibe of the restaurant generally is giving off that it's welcome concept. it's welcoming it's welcoming for that yeah yeah absolutely which i think is yeah. sort of like a, an interesting concept in and of itself without having to necessarily say anything to anyone yes yeah just yeah, yeah something about the collective attitude there yeah yeah, That's the power really of implication, I think, yeah. really plays out within that space, which I think is really a really, really interesting thing yeah, it's in a, and of itself. I think, like, just sort of putting together a 
what you're saying and, and the fact that you started off by saying that you hate people asking you about this sort of like woman question. Yes. Yeah. Like, because there's this, this, the skipping over of, of talking to you just as somebody in the industry. Yeah. And so maybe kind of the lead on from that is there's a fear of talking too much about it yeah. because you don't want to be overly associated with just being an expert on a female experience. Yeah, 100%. You want to be able to just have conversations about the industry general. Absolutely. um, And kind of skip over this point where we're all like, yeah, good for you for being yeah. a woman in this industry. Great, because that's, that's the other thing. Yeah, and it feels like, yeah, it feels a little bit false as well in the sense that, like, yeah. because I've, in this industry, I've never been marginalised for being a woman. Yeah. In the world, retrospectively, right. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But, you know, it feels a bit like uh, being from somewhere where I have watched people genuinely like I've watched people genuinely suffer for just existing, mm-hmm. you know, and just for being subjected to a shitty history, you know, like watching, being very acutely part of a, of a community in Alice Springs that is very divided in some ways. Mm-hmm. Watching all of that trauma play out through generations of people and being really directly exposed to it, there is like a really uncomfortable falseness for me when someone's like, has it been a struggle for you in this industry? Like, tell me more about the struggles of being a woman. I was like, look, to be honest, nothing has happened to me that I would think is particularly, especially in, like, relation to things, and that's what I mean by it's always somewhere in my head. Yeah. Having, you know, grown up with that kind of stuff, like, it's very sensorily direct. Like, it's right there. You can't ignore it. There's, like, man, you, like, walk down the street and there's, like, people with, like, wounds on their bodies and like it's it's nuts mm-hmm. you know and so it's like I it's also this point of like I don't like while I'm really excited for other people who really need it like really genuinely that like I think you know like it doesn't feel very the question also never feels particularly intersectional either like it's difficult for me because I'm like oh yeah sometimes being a woman's hard but also I'm white I've got heaps of cash <laughs> Like, yeah. so really, like, I don't actually have all that much to say mm. about how this has been a struggle. And I think I, there's been points where I think I've sensed a twinge of, like, disappointment. There's not that sensationalism of me being like, oh, well, yeah, this one time this chef groped me and I was really sad about it. Like, yeah. You know, yeah, but like, it is, it's hard to tread that line because yeah. you you don't want your – um, your lack of severe suffering, to kind yeah. of um, use your word, you don't want your lack of that to imply that other women aren't Exactly. Suffering. And it's like, yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. It's like saying things like you f- I feel like, especially when it comes to a subject like this and speaking of like internet outrage culture, mm. where it's like I think people are genuinely scared mm. to deviate from the rhetoric in any way. Because all of a sudden it gets published and then you have a thousand comments that you have to deal with yeah. or read or whatever. Yeah. And there's no space for that whole thing of like, hey, had you considered that maybe this is kind of problematic for this reason and then 
you can have a like discussion about why or why not that may or may not apply to you specifically. And if it is, but instead it just gets kind of like drowned out in this like storm of batshit insanity that like, I don't, I don't want to be pushed into occupying that space because I know that for me it will become consuming Yeah, because I cannot help myself. Yeah. I will have to argue with, because I, that's how I am. You know, like I'm, I think a lot of people are genuinely trying to do or say the right thing mm-hmm. and then it gets misconstrued because it's really difficult, I think, to be completely inclusive of everyone and everything all the time. And it doesn't mean it's something that you shouldn't practice, but I just kind of resent this like kind of scary persecution sometimes yep. of, so whenever someone asks me that question, that's also the next thought in my brain is like, oh, fuck, okay, yeah. how do I talk about this without it sounding like, you know, I'm just like, oh, no, it's not an issue. And it's like, it absolutely, is a massive, massive problem mm-hmm. for many, many women. And mm-hmm. it should absolutely be dealt with 100%. Mm-hmm. Is it specifically relevant to me? No. Am I exceptional? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and that's only specifically within the lens of the industry yeah. itself. Not within, you know, broader society. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, I've awful, awful experiences with men. You know, mm-hmm. I'm one of many, many women I know who has been sexually assaulted mm-hmm. on, like, not just once, like, multiple occasions, mm-hmm. you know? Like, and it's the norm. Yes. But weirdly enough, hospitality has actually been a place where I felt kind of protected. I've had a group of people who I've been really close to who have backed me in situations 100%. You know, mm-hmm. I had a guy once in the restaurant who had, like, Basically, was like looked at me. He was, really, he was a strange guy. He uh, after we had this conversation, actually grabbed one of his other friends at the table and tried to put him in a chokehold against a wall. So like, definitely kind of like and a big dude. I think kind of like steroid rage situation kind of happening. Mm-hmm. But um, he said something like really fucked up, like sexually explicit things to me at the table. And that's the point where I was like, I actually didn't know what to say. I went into a little bit of shock, and I turned around to Duncan. And I was like repeated this and you know Duncan's response wasn't like oh well you know don't it was like do you want me to take him into the alleyway (laughs) and me and all the boys can put him in the ground (laughs) yeah okay yeah you know so is that it's kind of like and not in a way that it was like this is the other nice thing is like it wasn't in a way that everyone feels like they have to jump to my defense Hmm. because that's the other thing that I think has become an issue for women working in the industry is like reading articles that are interviewing male chefs about how they feel about the feminist movement within the industry. And then it's like, no one's asking these women and then you've got these dudes who are like kind of, you know, it's the whole classic thing of like, I don't know, like, you know, the, <laughs> you get brownie points for, you get the cookie for not, for just doing the right thing. Yeah. Like, what you're doing is just normal baseline baseline yeah, yeah absolutely yeah 100% I suppose that's in a way I feel like rings kind of true for me is like if I talk about feminism and if I talk about my absence of struggles in relation to that it's like it's so hard not to feel like I'm just falling into the same trap as like these male chefs because like really we're going to talk about the concept of disadvantage my two disadvantages probably be that minorly for me within the realms of Africola I'm I'm female so it doesn't but that has never been an issue maybe if I went elsewhere perhaps I'd feel it more acutely I don't know Mm. I've completely lost my train of thought it's okay (laughs) sorry it's okay it's all right um I think like it's hard to it's hard to speak professionally 
yeah. or speak about your profession um, yeah. and keep the lines of your kind of personal experience or um, your understanding of the greater context yeah. um, in the industry. Especially in this one where it's so, yeah, because they're, because they're not weirdly, no. because like your entire job in this industry is to deal with society. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and thus they kind of bleed into each other and yeah. Yeah. As a front of, oh, that's what it was. It was kind of like the only disadvantage I would say is probably being front of house, which is still not thought of as a job. Yeah. That to me has been a much more glaring hurdle to overcome I don't think it is necessarily coincidental that the reason that front of house has declined in terms of people thinking of it as a real job mm. that real people can do, um, and that you know, that necessarily that the decline of the consideration of that as a real profession um, is because like most of those jobs are occupied by women. Yeah, and I really don't think that that's a coincidence. Much more men are chefs definitely the headline job to have the celebrity chef if i hear the word the celebrity maitre d fine i'll renege my statement <laughs> but i bet my bottom dollar it'll be a dude who's the celebrity maitre d first yeah not that i ever want that to be because that whole thing is just gross but <laughs> no but i know what you yeah. mean you know, know what i mean, mean. yeah so you mm. know like that's one thing that i suppose in terms of like talking about gender within the spectrum of hospitality like I think that's a real thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, like that's been, that's been the hard part actually has been mm. being like, oh, I've worked many events where I have worked just as hard and I, as you know, my head chef equivalent. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that I've been paid less mm. and that the thanks I have gotten have either been non-existent or so rude that I have since refused to work for them, like for, to work for organizations twice, mm. Mm. you know, it's like that really surprises me. And I don't, I think it actually has more to do. It's the double whammy possibly of like a, it's, you know, they when they look at me and my job, they're like, Oh, well you just carried plates. It's like, no, actually I built you a restaurant. Yes. We made all this possible. Mm. Like, to be able to run an event like that, it takes a chef and front of house. Yes, so of I can course. tell you that you do not want a chef at that table. <laughs> but you do that if you want to. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. And see what you want to do. You want to do. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, you know, like that's been, that's probably been the bigger hurdle. And my real bugbear is just like making sure that people are taking other people's careers seriously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, that's my like, we're really going to hit my push point. That would probably be it. And yeah. I just hope that people aren't ashamed to be like, this is what I want to do with a job. Yeah. I love this world. I love everything that comes with it. I love the grit and I like the glamour and I like all of – not a whole lot of glamour. When it's there, it's kind of nice. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like I want the shame associated with being a waiter to go away. Mm. I just want it to go away really quickly because it, A, makes employing people – stupidly hard and be like everyone should have to work in service at least once in their life yeah you should have to know what it feels like to be at someone else's whim really to an extent i definitely wouldn't describe myself as subject to other people's whims in the restaurant but there is like an accommodation that you make because mm -hmm. i want other people to be happy yeah. and, you know it's like that thing of 
considering the world outside of yourself. And I think it's really important. I just wish more people would do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, it. That's perfect. You did cool. it. Okay. Yeah. This was a long episode, so I won't keep you guys. But if you've got any questions for me or for Nikki, just reach out to me on our social or on Instagram or on Facebook. Also, like and subscribe and do all of those good things. I will be back in two weeks for episode two, and I will see you guys then. I've been Sarah Bell. This has been Gate Close Panic. Have a wonderful fortnight. Thank you.